I do want to review. If you'll look at your bulletin, I can give you the outline real quickly if you want to write that down. And if you don't get it all written down, then we will be working through this. There are two primary points, basically three points, but two of them that we will cover in great detail today. And then the third one will probably be covered in a little more detail tonight as we gather to pray and and have a time of study. The title this morning is The Blessing and the Cursing of the Law and the Gospel. In verse 7 of our text, let's go ahead and read our text and then we will, I'll give you the outline as I work through it. Verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 8, we're going to read through the rest of the chapter. For if the first commandment had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for the second. For finding fault with them, he saith, Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah. Not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. I will put my laws into their minds and write them in their hearts, and I will be to them a God, and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. And that he saith, A new covenant he hath made the first old, now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. Let's pray. Father, I pray you'd bless our time this morning. God, we thank you for your word. Thank you for uh, revealing yourself to us through your word. Father, we thank you for this new covenant, this better covenant on better promises. Father, we thank you for the spirit that cleanses our conscience from our sin when, when, you, uh, when you regenerate us. Father, I pray you'd be with us this morning as we go through your word, as we study your word. May we be encouraged. May we be admonished to know you more. We thank you and we praise you in the name of Jesus. Amen. Well, real quickly, um, in verse 7, we see the fault with the first covenant. That would be the first point that we cover here in a moment. The fault with the first covenant. And I've got a few points under that I want to bring to your attention. And then the second point in verses 8 through 13 will be the blessing of the new covenant. The blessing of the new covenant. We'll have a few things. We are primarily going to be going through a ton of Scripture this morning to look at these things. But as a way of introduction, I want to uh, remind you of what we studied last week. We looked at verse 1 through 6 in chapter 8 at this new priesthood. What we have seen before in in the priesthood that has been opened to us in chapter 7 was the qualification. What qualified Jesus to be this new priest? What made Him so special that He would be the new priest? And we saw his qualifications. And then as we come into verse, uh, or chapter 8, we be, uh, the author begins to un- unveil the function of this priest. How is this priest going to function in this new priesthood? What is the covenant going to be like? And, and actually from chapter 8, 
to chapter 10, verse 18, he, he unveils this whole thing, the function of the priesthood. We saw last week um, the position of, of, of where he ministers from, that it is on a throne. He is seated as a king, as a priest on this throne, and he is ministering from that position. We saw the place of his, uh, of his ministry, and that is the true tabernacle, uh, the true temple, the true sanctuary. That is which, that's the one which the, uh, the earthly was patterned after, and that is the one in heaven. And then we, lastly, we saw the nature of this ministry. And, and I want to pick up there a little bit and give some more details as to the nature of this ministry, and then we will go into our text this morning. If you'll look back at verse 6, he says, But now hath he, meaning Jesus, obtained a more excellent ministry, by how much also he is the mediator of a better covenant, which is established upon better promises. Now let me say from the get-go, if you were to say that something is better, it is by at least insinuation that you're saying the first was faulty. If I, if I, uh, if I, if you go get a phone, you get a better phone, right? You get the latest upgrade on iPhone, which they seem to be pushing down our throats. You get the latest upgrade. When they say this one is better, they're they're implying at the very least that what you have is not sufficient anymore. You need this new thing. So for us to say that something is better, we're insinuating that what it is replacing was insufficient, it was incomplete, it, it lacked power. Verse, verse 6, this is the ministry itself is distinct. That's the nature of the ministry, if you'll notice there. But now hath he obtained a more excellent ministry. That speaks to the distinction of the ministry. It speaks to how different it was than the previous ministry of those Levitical priests. It speaks to the superiority of His ministry. It speaks to separating oneself. Jesus separated Himself from those Levitical priesthood in this fact alone that His sacrifice was once for all. When He offered His sacrifice, no other sacrifice was necessary. No other sacrifice had to be offered. No other sacrifice uh, yearly as the old priest did had to be offered. Why? Because Jesus' sacrifice was sufficient because of His perfect life. This idea of separating oneself, if you'll turn to Philippians real quick, is seen in the life of those who are in Christ. If Christ is our Savior, if Christ is our High Priest then that means that we must live distinct. We must live separately. We must live a little bit differently. Now, separation from the world does not mean isolation from the world. Right? We're in the world. Many of us, if not all of us, have secular jobs. We work amongst the world. If we were to isolate ourselves from the world, then uh, we would be at some compound like down in Waco years back of just trying to get, you know, live amongst ourselves, but we are put in this world. We are ambassadors uh, for Christ to live in this world. Look at verse 10 of Philippians chapter 1. That you may approve things that are excellent, that you may be sincere and without offense till the day of Christ. That we may prove the work that God has done within us, that it is excellent, that it is different than what 
was before. We see that this ministry, the nature of this ministry, is not only distinct, it's not only different, but notice how also it is different. How much also He is the mediator of a better covenant. A mediator is one who simply... um, Someone who unifies two parties. You go all the way back to Genesis chapter 3. There has been enmity created between humanity and God because of Adam and Eve's sin. And so there had to be one who would unite uh, the party who rebelled against God and uh, unite them to God. We see this is ascribed to Christ. As a matter of fact, um, look at Galatians chapter 3. This mediator is someone who unites two parties. You could think it of in terms of, in our day, uh, here using a sports analogy, oftentimes a player, say a baseball player, basketball player, football player, whatever, will often enter into arbitration with the team that he's playing for. There is someone who is on behalf of those parties getting them to come to an understanding to an agreement that they can both be satisfied with. Galatians chapter 3, look at verse 20. Now a mediator is not a mediator of one. I can't... If there's no two parties that need to be united in peace, there's no need for a mediator. Right? What he says, but God is one. God doesn't need someone to unite himself. God doesn't need someone to unite Him in peace. There it has to be a mediator to unite sinful man and a holy God together in peace. This is a mediator. It is ascribed to Christ. If you want to write this down, we won't turn there. 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5. There's one God, one mediator between man and Christ. The man, Christ Jesus. We don't need to go to someone to have them mediate on our behalf to God. We don't pray to saints. We don't pray to others. We pray directly to God. That is the, that is the beauty of, of one of the great things of Christianity is that we don't have to go to someone to have them mediate and pray for us on our behalf. We can go directly to God through Christ Jesus. That's what makes the, the sacrifice of Christ so beautiful. Now, do we want to have others pray for us? Absolutely. Absolutely. We want to, as a matter of fact, we have a time of prayer. This evening, we we spend time in prayer in the mornings to to pray for people. And we want to pray for people. We want to intercede for them. But we don't need a mediator as Christ serves to go on our behalf. We see this, obviously, in in chapter 8, verse 6 of Hebrews. If you'll turn over to chapter 9 of Hebrews and look at verse 15, you see it there. Now, I want to say that I'm going to repeat myself a lot over the next few chapters because the Bible repeats itself. And that's a way of learning, right? Repetition of learning. There's going to be this constant theme over and over. Look at verse 15. And for this cause, He is the mediator of the New Testament. That by means of death, for the redemption of the transgressions that were under the First Testament, they which we called might receive the promise of eternal inheritance. He is a mediator. He unites in in peace. This is also found in Job chapter 9. If you'll turn over to Job. I was curious to find this 
way back in the Old Testament. You can turn there if you want. If not, um, you can you can write that down and look at it later. Job nine verse thirty three. Job. Um, Job lost everything he had, um, and it was not due to any sin within himself. Satan approaches God in that day, and God asks him, have you considered my servant Job? And Satan basically says, well, you've got a hedge of protection about it. And so God says, okay, you can take everything he has, but do not touch him. Took everything he had, goes back. God says, you can touch him, but do not kill him. So he strikes him with balls. Now, keep in mind that Satan was only able to do what God allowed him to do. Satan could only do to Job what God allowed him to do to Job. That Satan does not have free reign to do as he pleases, though he is working in this world, him and his demons. But he does not have free reign to exact things upon the people of God as he wishes. Now, just because something bad happens to us does not necessarily mean that that was something um, that Satan done. As a matter of fact, who was it? Flip Wilson back in, what was it, the 80s or the 70s had this thing of saying, the devil made me do it. No, the devil didn't make you do it. Your own depravity, your own sinfulness made you do that. The devil had nothing to do with that. It was David, uh, or James says that we sin when we are drawn away of our own lust. And so we must be careful not to feed those lusts. Back to Job chapter 9, verse 33. Neither, and so Job is responding to one of his friends. His friends made the, the assumption that because these bad things had happened to Job, then Job was guilty of some sin. And we need to be careful because things are hap- bad happening to people. Don't assume that it's because of sin or any wrong that they've done. But nonetheless, and Job responded, responds to each of his friends that make this accusation. And so in Job's response to uh, Bildad, um, he he uses this phrase as he's talking uh, uh, about... uh, We'll look at verse 33. Neither is there any daysman betwixt us that might by his hand upon us... that might lay his hand upon us, us both. And that word daysman there is a mediator. I mean, think about that in the days of Job that you did, they did not yet have the reality of Christ um, in, in their life. It was still only a, a prophecy. And even Job was before the prophets came. So nonetheless, we see this work of a mediator. It is the uniting of two parties. And it is the uniting of two parties based on a better covenant. Back to verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 8. He is the mediator of a better covenant which was established upon better promises. This is a better covenant established on better promises. Now, I said it a moment ago, if something is said to be better, then it's assumed that what it's replacing is inferior. It's insufficient. It, it, it lacks some qualities um, that the better will fulfill. And what we see in the Old Testament is it lacked... Um, it lacked the ability to forgive sin, as we'll see in a moment. It was weak, the Bible calls it. The old was a type and shadow of what was to come. 
All of those things in the Old Testament pointed to Christ. The tabernacle pointed to the true tabernacle. The sacrifice pointed to the perfect sacrifice of Christ. Um, So on and so forth. And so we see those things. The high priest pointed to a greater high priest to come. Even down to the prophets and the kings of Israel pointed to a more perfect prophet, a greater prophet, and a more perfect king. So what are these promises that this covenant is built on? What are these better promises? Well, a promise is a legal term denoting a summons or promise to do something. It's a guarantee, if you will. This is used only of the promises of God except in one place, and that is Acts chapter 23, verse 21, And the word promise that is used there is these men who conspired together to kill Paul and they had made a promise, a covenant, an oath to one another that they would follow through with that. Elsewhere, when we see this promise, it is in relation to the promises of God. This thing promised is a gift graciously given, not a pledge secured by negotiation. If, If salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone is a promise given to us in this new covenant, then it cannot be negotiated. You you, you can't come to God and say, look, here's my good deeds. I deserve salvation. He's going to laugh at you. You're going to be like those people that we read about in Psalm 28. You're going to be like the people in Psalm 2 who, who, um, who, who try to exact themselves against God, who try to speak against God. You will be laughed out of heaven and thrown into hell if you try to offer your good deeds. It's not by the law. It's not by good deeds that we can be saved. The thing promised, listen, is a gift graciously given. Graciously. What is grace? Grace is undeserved, unmerited favor, right? It is something that we cannot in a thousand lifetimes deserve from God. And if it's something that we could deserve to God, then based on our goodness, our inherent goodness, God would be beholden to us to give it to us. But God's not beholding to anybody. He's not obligated to anyone. He's obligated to Himself to make, to be consistent with His character, to follow His character. The thing promised, a gift graciously given, not a pledge secured by negotiation. And we see as we'll open this text up here in a moment, part of that promise is the promise of the Spirit. It's the promise that Jesus Christ would leave this earth and that another comforter, one of equal standing, one of equal value, would come in His place. This promise was to the Gentiles. Look at Galatians chapter 3. Let's go back to Galatians. One of the great truths that we see throughout Scripture is God's intention for mankind has always included the Gentiles. It was not that He went to Israel and Israel rejected Him and He thought, man, what am I going to do? Go to those nasty old Gentiles? No, Gentile inclusion was always in God's eternal plan. Galatians chapter 3, look at verse 14. That the blessing of Abraham... Let's back up to 13. Christ hath redeemed us from the curse of the law, being made a curse for us, for it is written, Cursed is everyone that hangeth on a tree. 
that the blessing of Abraham might come on the Gentiles through Christ Jesus. The promise was to the Gentiles as well. It was the seal of the Spirit. Turn to Ephesians chapter 1. Ephesians chapter 1, look at verse 13. And this even gets to the question of how does one know that they're a believer? How do they know that they're in Christ? How do they know at how do they know that they're a Christian? How do they know that they've been born again? Look at verse 13. In whom ye also trusted, after that, speaking of Jesus, after that ye heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, in whom also, after that, ye believed, you were sealed with that Holy Spirit of promise. What evidence is it that we have that we have been granted faith by God, that His grace has shined upon us, is that He has put His Spirit within us. And it's His Spirit that bears witness that we are His. As a matter of fact, there's a lot of talk about the mark of the beast at this point. What is the mark of a Christian? It's a stamp, something that has put, been put upon them that signifies that we are one of God, and that is His Spirit. And that's evidence in the fruit that we bear as we live our life, as we saw in Sunday school this morning. So these are promises. These are, and what we'll see here in a moment is these are all part of this new covenant. Going back to Hebrews chapter 8, verse 7 through 13 is our main text this morning. It is the bulk of where we will be. And it is an explanation of the better promise that was prophesied in the Old Testament. It's a further explanation and the chapters... Uh, up to chapter 10, verse 18, is, is, a, is the explanation of that. Notice the first word there in verse 7, for. For, what is this? This is, uh, it introduces by way of explanation the ground or motive of what proceeds. So what has been explained to us before was the priesthood of Christ, how that is going to function. And on what he's going to connect now, this is the promise of a new covenant that we will see, we're going to turn to Jeremiah 31 here in a moment, is a unifying thing. This is a unifying thing, this promise of this new covenant. This word covenant occurs some 14 times in this passage. As we see this, it'll, it'll, become, it'll, it'll come, become more clear. Now, let, let me give you an explanation of, of a covenant or a, an example of a covenant. A covenant could be seen um, in, in a few things. One, uh, we think of, and contract is probably not the best term to describe it, but you think about a contract that is signed. Um, we just refinanced our house in, in, in Pampa. We signed a contract to refinance that. Um, that is, in a sense, a covenant. I made a covenant with the mortgage company that I would pay so much a month. It's seen even more clearly in the covenant of marriage. That, that's why we ought to take marriage so seriously. That's why we ought to take it as more than just two people getting together to procreate and to have grandchildren, right? It's, it's more, so much more than that. It's really a picture of, of the bride of Christ and of Christ coming together, right? That there's this covenant. And it's seen even in church membership that when you join the church, you are coming into a covenant relationship with other believers in Christ. And it obligates us one to another. It obligates us 
to, uh, to in this, this accountability. The church I pastored in Pampa, we had a class that we would bring people through um, basically stating what we believed, uh, how the church ran it, and all that. And at the end, we wanted to hear your testimony of how you came to faith in Christ. And there was a covenant that each of us would sign. They, the, the, the prospective member would sign, and basically what you're saying is, I'm going to allow you to pastor me. And I would sign, or an elder would sign, and what that we were saying was, hey, we are going to pastor you. In other words, we are going to be involved in your life. We are going to, to minister to you. We're going to shepherd you. We're going to teach you. We're going to guide you. Uh, not so that we can run your life, but so that we can minister to you as part of this ministry God has called pastors to. So we see this explanation is going to be of what has been explained to us, of what proceeded of this uh, high uh, priesthood. So let's look at verse 7. And if you didn't get the, the points that I wrote down uh, or gave to you here a moment ago, uh, we're going to get ready to do that. Let's read verse 7. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then should no place have been sought for in the second. If that first covenant, if the covenant that was given to Abraham and to Moses and the fathers, if that had been perfect, if it had uh, uh, been able to bring men to salvation, if it had been able to purge the conscience, to clear the conscience, then there would have been no reason for the second. If the blood of bulls and goats would have been able to take away the sins of mankind, then there would have been no need for Jesus to sacrifice His life. So this, the fault with this first covenant or the curse of this covenant, and by the way, the word fault means to condemn, to condemn someone. So this first, this first covenant was actually condemning man at that time. It could not empower obedience. The first covenant could not empower obedience. Turn to Romans chapter 8. <clears throat> And I'll give you a good example of this, that the law could not empower obedience. How many of us on the highway speed? It's posted speed limit sign, right? I'm glad I live in Texas because Texas is the only place that has a speed at which I can travel at. I go outside of Texas and I grow constantly frustrated because the speed limits are not quite the same as they are in Texas. But nonetheless, I digress. There's a posted speed, there's a posted speed limit sign out here on 103, 60 miles an hour. I was walking this morning. There was a guy met me going, uh, going to the east doing at least 80. Now, just because there's a posted speed limit sign, just because there's a stop sign, that does not power, empower obedience, does it? How many of... No, never mind. Don't answer that question. So the law does not empower obedience. The law cannot empower obedience. Look at Romans chapter 8, verse 3. Uh, let's back up to verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to those who are in Christ Jesus. That is something that we need to latch on to and hang on to. If you are in Christ, you are not condemned. Who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. There's that promise of the Spirit we see. Walking after the, after the Spirit is part 
uh, of being a Christian. It is a, a mark of being a Christian. Notice verse 2. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus, Jesus hath made me free from the law of sin and death. Now let me say this before we move on. Just because we have been granted grace by God through Christ does not mean that we can disobey the law. We are still bound by the moral law. And the moral law, if you will, is just a boundary that we and in that boundary we have freedom. So we're still bound by the moral law, and we'll look more at that later. But look at verse 3. For what the law could not do, in that it was weak through the flesh... The law, in a sense, is an inanimate object, right? It is words written on paper. It has no life. It can give no life. It cannot empower obedience. Look what he goes on to say. God sending His own Son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh. So the law could not empower obedience. And we see that in the sinfulness of man. Right? I mean, you can see that in, in little kids. See that in my grandchildren. You tell them not to do something, what do they do? Kind of look at you and then do it. Right? You see that in your own children. We see that in our own lives. So the fault or the condemnation, if you will, of the first covenant was that it could not empower obedience. And the problem was not with the law. The problem was with our flesh. Just like we have today. Secondly, under this heading, it condemned man... By not clearing the conscience. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. We've looked at this several times over the last couple of weeks. It seems like we keep going back to this as well. Hebrews chapter 10. Look at verse 3. But in those sacrifices, speaking of the sacrifices of animals, there is a remembrance again made of sins every year. Can you imagine what it was like? Every year the Day of Atonement come around, there would be another sacrifice offered and your sins would constantly be on your conscience. We'll see here in a moment the promise of the Holy Spirit is that our sins have been forgiven. God remembers them no more. Why do we hang on to them? Why do we try to dredge those things up for people, in particular others, those sins of the past, those sins that, that were, are under the blood, we try to get the blood out of the way so that we can dig up those old sins. church I pastored in Louisiana, I had, um, who's actually become my best friend, I had him preach in my absence one time. Now, the man had been divorced. The man is a gifted Bible teacher. Is a gifted Bible teacher. You know there were people in the, in the congregation that got mad because he was divorced. Now, if that, and, that, and that was before he was a Christian, so that should not have even brought, been brought up. But if God can forgive us of sin, why do we try to dredge those things up? So, this, this, this covenant, this old covenant, this faulty, this condemning covenant could not, um, could not empower obedience and it could not, or it condemned man by not clearing the conscience. Our sin was constantly, or their sin was constantly on their mind. And then thirdly, 
it was unable to forgive sin. And we see this here in our text in, in, in chapter 10. Let's read all four verses. For the law having a shadow of good things to come and not the very image of the things. The law only was a shadow. It was something that you look forward to coming. Can never with those sacrifices which they offered year by year continually make the comers thereunto perfect. The comers meaning those who would come to worship. It could not make them perfect. It could not bring reconciliation. It could not mediate peace between the two parties. Notice verse 2. For then would they not have ceased to be offered. If those things could have brought perfection, there would be no need. For they would not have ceased to be offered. They would not have been done away with. Because that the worshipers once purged should have had no more conscience of sin. So if a sacrifice was offered for sin, it should have purged the conscience. But that's not how the old covenant worked. That's not how that old system worked. But in those sacrifices, we just read, read this, there is a remembrance again made of sin every year. Now notice verse 4. For it is not possible that the blood of bulls and of goats should take away sin. Now let me say this. Let's just Let me say this. Take this side trail real quick. I know with the, as time grows near and, and time goes on, there's a system that tells you the temple will be rebuilt and they will instill, instill the, uh, or install the, the sacrificial system again. There is no reason for that, folks. That is blasphemy against God. Why? Because the, the sacrifice of Christ finished that stuff. It's over with. There's no need for that. If it goes, if it is built and those sacrifices are offered again, it is against the will of God that that would happen. It is against His purpose that that would happen. Let's move on. Back to Hebrews chapter 8. <clears throat> So we have the fault of the Old Covenant. Now we have the blessing of the New Covenant. We pick up in verse 8 of Hebrews chapter 8. For finding fault with them, he saith... Now this would be considered an oracle of God, that God said this. Behold the days come, saith the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Jacob. Now let me say this. This is not about physical Israel. This is about um, the true Israel, the, the believing Jews and the believing Gentiles that we read about in Galatians chapter 6. Notice verse 9. He's making this new covenant not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers. In other words, that served a purpose, but this covenant is going to be different than that covenant. In the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, saith the Lord. Now the covenant that God made with them at Mount Sinai was conditioned on their obedience. It was conditioned on their obedience. Uh, the, the Scriptures say that if the uh, Lord says, if you obey me, then I will make of you a priest, uh, a, a kingdom of priests, and so on and so forth. And But we know from the story of Israel that they did not obey God. They were constantly, to use biblical language, uh, whoring after other gods. They were constantly pursuing false idols. They were constantly trying to, the word is syncretized, bring uh, uh, false idols, pagan idols into Judaism to worship God along with 
those other idols. And by the way, we do the same thing in Christianity. We do the same thing with the Christian faith. We try to bring things in and worship both of those things. Uh, There's spiritism and, and mysticism, all those sorts of things that we try to merge with Christianity to worship those things. And that, that's, that's idolatry. Verse, uh, where are we at? verse 9. Um, I'm sorry, verse 10. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, saith the Lord. Those days, meaning their captivity after that, after that covenant. I will put my laws into their mind and write them in their hearts. I will be to them a God and they shall be to me a people. And they shall not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord for all that know me from the least to the greatest. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. In that he saith, A new covenant... He hath made the first old. Now that which decayeth and waxeth old is ready to vanish away. So the second point this morning is the blessing of the new covenant. The blessing of the new covenant. So we have the curse or the condemnation or the fault of the old. We have the blessing of the new covenant. Let's turn to Jeremiah chapter 31. This passage that I just read is a direct quote from Jeremiah chapter 31. Look at verse 31 through 34. Behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand to bring them out of the land of Egypt, which my covenant they break, although I was an husband unto them, saith the Lord. But this shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel, after these, those days, saith the Lord, notice, there's going to be three things that we gather out of this. I will put my law in their inward parts. Now, if you go to Deuteronomy chapter 5, we're not looking at that, but the, the, the Israelites were told to write these things on their hands and on their head, uh, to write, put these things on the walls of your home. And, and what he's talking about is the law of God. And what he meant is that it is to ever be in front of your eyes. It is to ever be before you. Rehearse these things with your children. Teach your children. But notice in this new covenant what he says. This shall be the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel. I will put my law in their inward parts. This is the implanting of God's law in, in, in the hearts of man by the Spirit of God. We'll look more at that here in a moment. After these days, saith the Lord, I will put my law in their inward parts and write it in their hearts and will be their God and they shall be my people. And they shall teach no more every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me. And this is not speaking universally of mankind. This is not speaking of every single individual in the saving sense. Um... 
Verse 34, Know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them unto the greatest of them, saith the Lord, for it will, for I will forgive their iniquity and I will remember their sin no more. You recognize the difference between the old and the new? You, you see that? That the old could not forgive sins. The old could not cleanse the conscience. The old could not make man right before God. But the new, the blessing of the new covenant it's seen in three aspects. Number one, it is the implanting of God's law in the hearts of man. Turn to Ezekiel 36, please. Ezekiel 36. This implanting of God's law in the, in the hearts and the minds of man, uh, the, the, the technical theological term would be regeneration. Or we would call it the new birth or born again, or, or even going further, saved, right? That those are, are, it's happened in those who have come to Christ by grace through faith alone. Turn to Ezekiel 36, and we get a great picture of this in Ezekiel 36. Verse 26. Well, let's back up to verse 22. Therefore, saying to the house of Israel, Thus saith the Lord God, I do not this for your sakes. Now, God's talking about making His name, uh, or consecrating His name, making His name holy. O house of Israel, but for mine holy name's sake, which you have profaned among the heathen, whether you went. Now, before God put His Spirit within you, you profaned the name of God. You say, well, I've never used the Lord's name in vain as in the way it's typically used. Oh, but you did you worship God when He needed to be worshipped the way He needed to be worshipped or desired to be worshipped? The way He has told us to worship Him. Um, and we could go through the law and see that, yeah, we, were actually, we actually displayed our hate to God by disobeying His law. Verse, 20, verse 23, And I will sanctify my great name, that is to set apart, to consecrate, which was profaned among the heathen, which you have profaned in the midst of them. Now, you think about Israel. Israel, God told them when they went into the promised land, when they were to go into the promised land, He said, I want you to wipe everybody out. Wipe them out. Start over. Start afresh. Kill everybody. And that was to rid out the, the paganism and the false worship and the false idols that was in that land. Now, what's the picture that we see of that? Is that they disobeyed God. They didn't do what God told them to do. And so we see this idol worship. We see false worship. And it's a reminder. Look, the promised land is, in that sense, is a, a picture. that this, this wandering in the wilderness is a picture of this life on earth. Right? That we're constantly battling sin. If you have been uh, uh, saved by God, if you've been given of His Spirit, if you've been granted faith to, to trust in Christ, then you know the battle of sin in your life. You know that God works by His Spirit to reveal these things and we must confess our sin. Let's go on. Verse 24. Notice, n- notice the word I throughout this. For I will take you from among the heathen and gather you out of all countries and will bring you into your own land. Then will I sprinkle clean water upon you and you shall be clean from all your filthiness and from all your idols will I cleanse you. Verse 26, a new heart also will I give you and a new spirit will I put within you. And I will take away the stony heart out of your flesh and I will give you an heart of flesh. Wow! That is the promise of the new covenant. 
And look what it goes on to say in verse 27. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you shall keep my judgments and do them. And what a promise that God would take this heathen generation, these heathen people, and put his spirit within them and cause us to walk in his ways. How does he do that? How does he cause us to walk in his ways? By his word. He reveals to us our sin, our infirmities. He reveals to us our transgression. Which, by the way, if you notice that we don't like using the word sin anymore, we like to call them mistakes. We like to say, I messed up. We don't call it what it is. And by the way, when we're confessing our sin before God, we need to name those sins. Don't, don't just give a general sense of sin and ask in a general way to forgive God. We need to name the sin that we're guilty of. If we've got, if we've got hatred in our heart toward our brother, we need, to, we need to name that sin. We need to confess that. If there's a particular area of sin, that's what God's Spirit does within you. That is the promise of the new covenant. So the blessing of the new covenant is God implanting His law in our hearts and our minds, giving us of His Spirit. that we would follow Him. Because Isaiah 64, 7 says, you wouldn't even stir yourself up to follow Him. This has to be a work of God. Look at uh, Ezekiel chapter 11. Turn back to Ezekiel 11. Verse We have this promise again. I will give them one heart. I will put a new spirit within you. I will take the stony heart of, out of their flesh. And I will give them a heart of flesh. The, the heart of flesh signifies something that is pliable. So, something, so, something that is not as... That, that, you, know, you think of a stone, you think of what? Something that's unresponsive. The result of God putting a new heart within you is that you respond to the gospel. You respond in faith and repentance. So the blessing of the new covenant is the implanting of God's law in their minds. It's not the memorization, but regeneration through the Spirit of God. The second point under this is personal experiential knowledge of God. Now, I'm not talking about that God come to you in a dream or you saw His face on a piece of bread. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about that God has saved you. God has redeemed you. God has given you faith and He has caused you to walk in His steps. And you, as you obey Him, you experience Him more deeply than you did before. See, that's the purpose for studying Scripture. That's the purpose for reading Scripture. That's the purpose for fellowship. That's the purpose for preaching. That's the purpose for teaching is that we would know God more. That's the purpose for obedience. You want to know God more clear, more. Evidently in your life, obey Him. Let me give you this last point. I, my time is gone. So, the blessing of the New Testament is one, the implanting of God's law in their hearts by His Spirit. Secondly, is a personal experiential knowledge of God. And by the word, way, uh, you see in 2 Peter chapter 1, this word knowledge that comes up, the word is... Uh, I won't give you the Greek word, but the, the, the definition is a more thorough participatory knowledge. In other words, it requires the hearer to act. 
Right? That's the purpose of preaching. The exhortation is requiring you to respond in obedience to God's Word. But second, but thirdly, it is the blotting out of His people's sin. Go back to Hebrews chapter 8. Hebrews chapter 8. And notice verse 12. For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. God said that He would cast our sin as far as the east is from the west. You can go west and keep going west and keep going west and you end up back where you started, right? I mean, there's... Like our earth sits on the North Pole and the South Pole, right? It's the axis. But that's not the case with the East and the West. You, you keep going West, you're going to end up right back here, right? He even said that He would cast our sin as far to the bottom of the sea. And you think, well, that's not a big deal. You know, the sea's kind of deep. Have you considered the Mariana Trench? 30,000 feet, I think it is, and no man has gone to those depths. We've not been able to build anything that could send man down to those depths because of the pressure. If man can't explore the depths of the ocean, why are we digging up other people's sin? Why are we digging up even our own sin? The blotting out of sin, the the, the people's sin. Look at uh, verse 27 of chapter 7 and we'll close. It's talking about Jesus as the high priest. Here he says, Who needeth not daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifice, first for his own sins, and then for the people's. For this he did once. Not So he didn't offer a sacrifice for himself and then offer a sacrifice for his people once. And then it was over. He offered a sacrifice for his people once. Because he was sinless. He did not need a sacrifice to purge his own sin. For this he did once when he offered up himself. And because of the blood of Christ, because of the spirit that God has, get, has put within us, we don't live in condemnation. We live with a clear conscience. When we confess our sin, we forsake our sin, and we go to God for his forgiveness. First John 1 John 1.9 If we confess our sin, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a promise that we have in this new covenant. Who would want to go back to that old? These Hebrew Hebrew Christians were so discouraged because of the persecution they were under, that's what they wanted to go back to. And what what the author is saying, no, we have better promises, a greater mediator, a better covenant built on these better promises. And folks, for us as Christians today, look, I, I realize that, that we're, I don't know of anybody in here that would be tempted to go to that old system of religion, but we're tempted to draw away from God at times in our life. We're tempted to go back to things that are comfortable for us, but for the people of God, we must press on. We must look to Christ realizing what God has done in us if He has done that in us. Let's pray.